The scripture lesson for today comes from the book of the Acts of the Apostles. In the second chapter, beginning at the first verse, hear the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered was bewildered because each one of them heard speaking in the native language of each Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not these who are speaking all Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to the Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea! And all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh God, startle us with the miracles found in your word and help us to make sense of what we find here and to ask what it means for our lives. Hold us up in faith and help us to ground ourselves in a tradition that burns like the fire of the Holy Spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. 
Amen. So like I told you, today is Pentecost in the church. I just read you the story of Pentecost from the book of Acts. This is one of a handful of Sundays that make me a little uncomfortable every year. Pentecost Sunday, Transfiguration Sunday, Trinity Sunday, Reign of Christ Sunday. In a traditional Presbyterian church like ours, pastors see these Sundays coming up on the calendar each year, these traditional religious festivals. We know that there are stories in the Bible associated with each one of them. And we know that you, busy with your own lives and not making your living in the church, probably arrive on Sunday having no idea that it is Pentecost Sunday. And we wonder if you will care. And we wonder if convincing you to care is really the most important thing for us to do on Sunday morning. I can see both sides. On the one hand, holding fast to Christian holidays like Pentecost seems totally irrelevant. You are not thinking about it anyplace else in your life, so I can see how you come to church and I mention Pentecost during the welcome and in the traditional service I switch my stole and we put a new tablecloth on the table and those kinds of things seem totally unimportant to anything else going on in your life. I see that. I also see that there is an opportunity here. When it comes to Pentecost, there is no secular distraction from the day. There is no Santa Claus or Easter Bunny, no holiday parties or egg hunts, no season going on outside the walls of the church to threaten to water down the religious meaning of this day. So if we pay attention, if we take notice of this and ask what it means, these celebrations can make us distinctive as religious people. When so much of life seems spiritually undernourished, stories like Pentecost tell us something about who we are and who our lives belong to. In the midst of a world where so many people feel untethered from traditions that matter, these stories have a chance to shape our identity and mold our community. Tradition, so the saying goes, tradition is not the maintenance of ashes, but the preservation of fire. Tradition is not the maintenance of ashes, but the preservation of fire. For me, Pentecost is a story about the keeping of our religious traditions. And as you will see, it is a story about how the church sustains its faith from one age to the next. Pentecost is a story about preserving fire. So here's the story. We've come to the end of Jesus' life on earth. Easter morning has come and gone. The resurrection appearances have taken place. Jesus has ascended into heaven. And that raises the question for the disciples, what now? What is belief in God going to look like 
on the other side of Jesus' earthly ministry? It is a live question for the disciples, and in a way, it is the question that we share most in common with them. How do you follow Jesus if he is not right there in front of you? The answer is in this story. Pentecost is the coming of the Holy Spirit, the holy presence Jesus sends into the world to continue his ministry. It happened in this way. The followers of Jesus are gathered together on Pentecost. It was a harvest festival in the Jewish tradition. Fifty days after Pentecost, they are gathered for a religious celebration. Suddenly, it says there is the rush of a violent wind from heaven. It fills the house, and the Holy Spirit descends upon all the disciples. It descends upon them like tongues of fire. The question that this story raises for me, the question this story raises is why hasn't this ever happened in my church? Why hasn't this ever happened in my church? I think if you're going to have a real story about, or a real, real conversation about this story, you've got to ask that question. In no church where I have ever served or worshipped have visible tongues of fire descended upon worshippers in a sudden rush of wind from heaven. How can that be explained? Maybe the coming of the Holy Spirit was meant to happen only once. Maybe the church these days is not faithful enough for it to happen again. Maybe the preaching here is inadequate to bring down the fire of the Holy Spirit. They're all good questions. And any of these questions, if we think about them too much, might make us deeply discouraged about our religion. But here's the thing. I cannot imagine why there would be a story like this in the Bible just to make us feel discouraged and inadequate about our faith. Why would that be? And so what I do believe is that the Holy Spirit does not only show up in rushes of wind and tongues of fire, but that the Holy Spirit actually shows up in ordinary ways all the time if we are willing to look for it. And that is the big question. Are we willing to look for it? This story is not quite as supernatural as it may appear at first. There are signs of that in the text itself. If you pay close attention, the text says that it looks like tons of fire and feels like a rushing wind from heaven that fills the house. But not to water things down too much, let's also look at the particular reactions of the people who were present. There were people there who believed in what was going on and were filled with the Holy Spirit, and there were other people who were doubters. There are people standing right nearby witnessing the whole thing who are not convinced. They do not experience a rushing wind from heaven. They do not see tongues of fire. What they see is a bunch of their neighbors behaving strangely, and they assume that they are drunk. 
So whatever these tongues of fire looked like, it wasn't convincing to everyone. Even in the ancient world, right on the heels of the life of Jesus on earth, faith was not obvious to everyone, and there were plenty of people who had their doubts. So it seems to me like we're not supposed to compare ourselves to this story or measure the faithfulness of our religious celebration against theirs. Instead, we're supposed to ask what this story is trying to tell us. And I think this story is trying to tell us to keep the fire of the Holy Spirit alive and to do it by any means at our disposal, to be open and curious and interested to know how the Holy Spirit might work among us at any given time. Sometimes the Holy Spirit appears in ways that look a lot more ordinary than you might expect but are actually life-changing. I saw tongues of fire descend on one of our Knox members this week. A young man attending a Bible study on this passage of Scripture opened up about ways he was seeing the fire die out in his marriage and how in the midst of a journey with his spouse, they were trying to figure out how to make it burn again. His great vulnerability in sharing that story invited other people in the room into his life. They deepened relationships with one another, with Christian friends in the course of that conversation. They gathered around a Bible story a story from 2,000 years ago in which they could finally see themselves. There may not have been literal tongues of fire, but most certainly they, like the disciples, were speaking a different language from the language they speak most of the time. And in that conversation that began in a seemingly very ordinary way, They were preserving the fire of their tradition. Things like that happen all the time. A week ago, we started a family event called Feast. We had a terrific turnout of families and children in our church. Young people who are not yet vaccinated needed an outdoor venue for worship. Parents who have had one of the hardest years of their lives needed to reconnect and get the support of their church family. We served dinner. We gave the kids a chance to play and hear a Bible story and the adults a chance to connect and study together and meet someone new. We worshiped together. We sang songs that were easy to teach and remember. We prayed and we talked about how to pray. There was nothing fancy about it at all. But we were keeping the fire of faith alive because of our shared sense that it is important to teach faith to our children. I've seen these kinds of connections made over and over and over again. It's been one of the strange gifts of this difficult year that has passed. 
at new kinds of outdoor events and weekly coffee and conversation on Zoom and the new friendships forming between older mothers and younger mothers in our congregation and all kinds of other examples. There are people making new friends, strengthening old relationships, reminding people that we still have a community that is holding together strongly in the midst of a pandemic. And in these ways and countless others, we are preserving the fire of our tradition. This week, most of you got a mailer about remembering the Knox Endowment in your end-of-life planning. It is hard to imagine an example for a sermon that sounds less like preserving fire. Consider this for a moment. The endowment of our church is the backstop that, is encur- that encourages us to take risks. That's what it's supposed to do. Because the security of the endowment is there, we try things, new things, that may at first seem frightening. And by taking risks, we find where God is leading us to go. During the past generation of gifts to the Knox Endowment, we have responded to God's call and grown and changed in significant ways by taking chances. We began housing homeless families in our church and spending time with them rather than just giving somebody else money to do it. We opened our ministries to persons of different sexual orientations, first in membership and then in elected leadership and then in marriage. We began this Fresh Spirit worship service and built the Knox Commons here in order to support it And we proved that we could worship in different styles and still be one congregation. These acts of faith have taken place just in the last generation, and they are tied to the generosity of people who have gone before us and enabled us to take risks. The loan to build the room we are standing in was secured by our endowment. These decisions I've been talking about caused great distress and hand-wringing at the time that they were made, and now they seem routine and like the obvious thing to have been done. In these ways of being faithful, we have preserved the fire of our tradition, and we have done so because we have listened to the leading of the Holy Spirit. If we expect Pentecost to look just like it did in the Bible, folks, we are always going to be disappointed. But the fact is that there are signs of fire all around us if we care to look for them. I wonder how many times the ancient disciples gathered at their Pentecost harvest festival 50 days after the Passover and wondered why nothing miraculous was taking place. It seems to me that what we need to do is notice when the Holy Spirit is at work. Give thanks for it. Give thanks to God for it. Look for and expect the Holy Spirit to be present more often so that we take part in the welcoming presence of fire and preserve it rather than just letting the ashes stay where they are. 
I have quite intentionally used mundane, ordinary-sounding examples in today's sermon in order to steer you away from the impression that the Holy Spirit only shows up in violent rushes of wind and tongues of fire. And so I'm going to finish with an ordinary example from my own life, and one that I hope might get you thinking about something in your life. Being a parent to four small children is quite certainly the hardest thing that I've ever tried to do. I'm sure that many of you would say the same thing about your own family life. It's welcome, and it's amazing, but it's a huge challenge. And on most days, a big part of it looks like asking my children over and over and over again to do the same thing. Pick up those clothes, those toys off the ground and put them away. Listen to what we're telling you to do. Stop beating each other up with your words and with your fists. Listen the first time. Don't make me tell you a dozen times. These things can so easily be seen as unwelcome and endless frustrations that come up time and time and time again. But when you talk about them out loud, it's obvious that that's not what's really going on. What's really going on is that these are little people, far away from being fully formed. They are trying and testing out things in life to see what works and to try to grow up and become big people. And what they need is for parents and other adults time and time and time again to give them an opportunity to be guided in the right way and to grow up to be the people God has created them to be. And every single day, I have countless opportunities to walk through that door and to see that opportunity to be the person that God is calling me to be. Not to be stuck in the maintenance of the ashes of a family life, but to be the part of preserving fire for a new generation. I wonder what might be the equivalent example of this in your life. What is that daily grind, that daily frustration where you have a choice between maintaining the ashes of a life you do not want or preserving the fire of a life to which God is calling you? Amen.